0: Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. This episode is sponsored by the town of Didsbury. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada -eh EHX. Now I'm going to be going through the history of Didsbury, and if you've been listening to my small town histories, you know that I don't go through a chronological listing of the various things that happened in the community. Instead, I look at different segments and different things, and I hope you enjoy this episode. (coughs) Indigenous History The area around Didsbury had been used by the Indigenous people for centuries, where they followed the bison as they migrated along the plains. The land around Didsbury was occupied primarily by the Blackfoot, but the Cree also lived in the area, and the community of Dog Pound is said to have received its name from the fact that the Cree had their dogs at the local creek as they returned to their winter camp from hunting food. The creek in the area provided natural roadways for the Indigenous and were used extensively by the Blackfoot and the Cree. Didsbury has celebrated its Indigenous history over the years, including in 2020. In September 2020, the museum held Indigenous Day of the Arts and had Métis artist and storyteller Dennis Weber on hand, along with Métis elder Doreen Burgum, who was teaching beading. Founding of the Community As Europeans arrived in the area, the area was sparsely populated for the most part, but it would slowly develop into a small settlement, with Mennonite settlers arriving around 1894. The Mennonites had come from Pennsylvania as United Empire loyalists to Waterloo County in Ontario, and then moved to future Alberta. The community was founded by Jacob Shantz, who led the 34 settlers to the area to take advantage of the excellent farmland. Shantz had been commissioned by Sir John A. MacDonald himself, and the pre-1900 settlement of the area was limited to only a small group of these people. Jacob Schantz set to work building an immigration hall, a barn, and a well in preparation of the settlers arriving. He would return to Waterloo County and select the first settlers, giving each a quarter section of land for $10. With a strong Mennonite population, the first focus was on building a church, one of the first buildings in the entire area. The Northwest Mounted Police had been in the area since 1890, and they provided the police protection for the new community. During the 1890s, the development of Didsbury was quite slow, as the area was sparsely populated. Jacob Y. Shantz, the son of Jerry Shantz and his wife, was the first child born in the district, while Ezra Sherrick and Cora Hunsberger were the first couple to be married in 1898. In 1897, the Canadian Pacific Railway arrived in the area, and it would spur on the development of the community. In 1899, J.C. Robertson built the first store in the community. In 1901, the community had three general stores, a hardware store, a hotel, a boarding house, along with many retail outlets. The community continued to move towards becoming a prominent centre in the area with the creation of the Didsbury Board of Trade in 1902. In 1904, a train station would be built in the community, and the following year the hamlet became a village. In that year, a creamery would open, and one year after that, the village was a town and business was booming. That same year, a pork planting plant, and a brickyard was started in Didsbury. Four years later, the first grain elevators were built. In 1901, the village overseer was a man named Cornelius Hebert, and he had moved to Didsbury in 1900 and would serve as the overseer for three years until 1904 when he made the decision to run for the Alberta Legislature the following year, when Alberta would become a province in Canada. He would win, becoming one of only two Conservatives elected that year. He was also the first Mennonite elected to the Alberta Legislature. As for the name, that comes from the township of Didsbury, which is now part of Manchester in England. Sunny Slope Shelter When early settlers came to the prairie areas that would become Saskatchewan and Alberta, they often built sod houses to live in. These sod houses were simple structures that would often leak, have rodent and snake problems, and generally were not the most pleasant places to live. Nonetheless, entire families would live in these places until a more permanent structure could be built. Move to an area, build a sod house, then build a regular house. That was the standard path of most settlers. But that was not the path one settler in the Didsbury area took. When you drive down one of the dirt roads that crisscross the area, you're going to see what looks like a small door standing in the middle of a field. That door leads to the Sunny Slope Sandstone Shelter. It's not known precisely who built this structure which is a simple dugout in the ground, but there is a theory and I'll get to that. The shelter exists much as it did a hundred years ago. The shelter is beneath an earthen grass covered mound and the only visible part of the shelter is the sandstone entrance that faces to the west. Shelters like this were more common than we realize, several homesteaders who migrated to the central Alberta area would create shelters such as this using pre-modern building techniques. Often the shelters were temporary living quarters, with families living in sod houses, simple shacks, or tents. The shelter roofs were typically made of logs or sod, supported by poles. The area around the Sunny Slope Shelter is free of trees for the most part, so such shelters would provide an excellent escape from the wind and the cold. So let's look at the shelter and who possibly built it. The first records on this land relate to Eric Steendahl, who had made an entry in the quarter of land on August 22, 1902, he would hold the land until it was released on June 26, 1903. Early settlers in the area recall seeing Steendall hauling sandstones from the nearby lake. Local blacksmith, a Mr. Coventry out of Olds, would later state that Steendall had come to him asking Coventry to make hinges for a door. Years later, Coventry, in relating the story to Jack Smith, stated he visited the shelter and saw that his hinges were on the door. The shelter at the time was 10 feet by 12 feet with a dome-shaped ceiling in which there was a skylight in the chimney. The walls were whitewashed and lime to make it as bright as possible within the shelter. In the fall of 1902, a local settler noticed that there was smoke coming from the northwest. He believed that it was a prairie fire and ran out to deal with the flames. It was then that he saw that it was actually smoke coming from the chimney of the shelter. Steendahl would live in the shelter until the winter of 1902-03, and he would leave soon after releasing his land, moving to North Dakota. Following Steendahl was a man by the name of George Sheck, who obtained the right to the land from the government on February 12th, 1904. He would reside there from March 1st, 1904 to April 8, 1904, before returning to Montana to work as a laborer. He moved back to the quarter on August 10th, 1904, and he built a wood frame building that he lived in, using the shelter as a root cellar. Many believe that it was George Sheck who built the shelter, rather than Steendahl, so let's look at that. In Memoirs of Sunny Slope Pioneers, it is stated that Sheck arrived from Wisconsin in 1903 to try homesteading. He is described as a stonemason, and that he built the underground house from native stone in the area. It also describes the frame buildings on the land that he lived in. Sheck apparently trained oxen and horses and took his animals very seriously, not allowing any jokes about his livestock. In an issue of the Olds Gazette, it is stated that the dugout was built around 1907 rather than 1903 as was stated before. After a few years, he would leave the area and his frame buildings would slowly disappear until only the stone shelter remained. In June of 1977, the Sunny Slope Shelter, as it is now called, was designated as a registered Alberta Historic Site. In the June 1st, 1977 issue of the Olds Gazette, the dugout was known as the Shack Dugout or One Man's Castle. But over the years since it was abandoned, vandals had damaged the entrance, but the structure remained sound for the most part. Today, you can still visit the shelter, and I actually have. I went on a road trip with my wife, and we went to the Sunny Slope shelter, and it is a really interesting thing to see. It's just this door in the middle of a field. It's very easy to get to. It's right outside Didsbury. I really encourage you to check it out, because it it's actually really cool. The
1: 1914
0: and 1924 Fires Fire is always something that early settlers of communities worried about, and Didsbury was no different. The community had already dealt with the loss of the Maple Leaf Mill in 1910 from fire, but 1914 would prove to be one of the worst years in the community when it came to fires. On January 1, 1914, the original business section of the community was burned to the ground, including two of the main blocks of Railway Avenue, which included two large frame hotels and a barn. The total cost of damages was estimated to be $300,000, which would be nearly $7 million today. Some of the prominent buildings lost on the fire included the post office and the home of the Didsbury Pioneer newspaper. If that wasn't bad enough, another fire erupted on March 7th when the blocks south of the original two blocks that were already destroyed burned to the ground. The loss was pegged at $12,000, or $274,000 today. Then, another fire would erupt only a week later on March 13th when the Clover Hill Creamery was destroyed by a fire, causing $5,000 in damage. Needless to say, it was not a great year for the community, especially with the First World War kicking off as well. Nonetheless, the community would rebound and continue through cooperation, determination, and hard work. One person who lost their business in 1914 was J.V. Burst, and he would rebuild his store, making it larger and built of brick. Sadly, 10 years later, the community was hit with another terrible fire and he would again see his store and livelihood burn to the ground. Once again, he got back down to work and built his shop up, eventually going into business with his son in 1925 and opening a second store in Innisfail in 1936. The 1924 fire which had started at the rear of the W.G. Lysimer Hardware Store, had once again destroyed the commercial streetscape and would result in town council passing a bylaw that required masonry construction for all new downtown commercial buildings. That forward thinking by the council would benefit visitors and residents today, because many of the buildings built after 1924 still stand thanks to their sturdy construction in the face of two devastating fires. The Didsbury newspaper would actually have terrible luck when it came to fires. The original newspaper was started in 1903, and that office burned down in the aforementioned 1914 fire. The second office was burned to the ground in 1940. The building the newspaper operates in now is actually built on the site of another fire that happened in 1972. But thankfully, since the newspaper moved to that location in the early 1990s, no fires have happened. I'd like to take a break away from the episode for a second to talk about ExploreNet. I've spent most of my life living in rural areas in Canada, and I remember the days of dial-up internet and spotty high-speed service. For the past three years, I have been a customer of ExploreNet, and I can honestly say that it is the best rural internet I have ever had. My job as a podcaster means I spend a lot of time researching online, interviewing people over Zoom, and uploading content. Through it all, Explornet has provided me with excellent service. When I'm not working, I enjoy streaming content on several streaming platforms, and even doing some online gaming with a friend in Ontario. ExploreNet allows me to do all of that with ease. Right now, they offer up to 50 megabits per second on their new LTE network with unlimited data. Their service has only become faster and better since I first signed on. Today and beyond, Explorinet is investing in building and upgrading the network at a rapid pace. ExploreNet is rural, and that is their route, and that is their focus. For more information about rural internet options in your area, go to ExploreNet.com or call 1-866-285-2253. The Didsbury Museum. If you've listened to my town histories before, then you know that I absolutely love local museums. The building that houses the Didsbury Museum was actually the Didsbury Public School, a brick and sandstone structure that was built in 1907 and held its first classes in 1908. The school would be used not only by students, but also as a temporary hospital during the outbreak of the Spanish flu in 1918 and as a training area for the men and women who enlisted during the Second World War. In 1989, it became the home of the museum and in 2011 was designated as a Provincial Historic Resource. Within the museum, you will find displays that depict a schoolroom, medical room, a general store, a 1907 cast iron safe, the churches of the area, military uniforms, and artifacts from the homestead days. If you want to read the newspapers of the past in the community, you can, because you can find every newspaper since 1908 at the museum. Here's Mayor Rhonda Hunter.
2: Thank you so much about the museum. It's so busy. Uh, it's really so busy, and you know, it started out as a school and. I actually went to school there in 1960 something early 60 something um, my grade one or two so it was a school then it was a, um, a hospital during the spanish flu and then it uh, it also became some military training grounds during the second world war for our area but the main theme being the school and uh, it was in 1960 one of them was torn down uh, it was a replica kind of building school so one's gone and the other one remained. And in 1989, the Disbury Museum moved in there. Yeah, the Old Red Brick Schoolhouse is, uh, because the Disbury District Historical Society has the um, title to it now, and that's the name on the title is the Old Red Brick Schoolhouse. So it, um, they're so busy though, like back to that, they're, this is weekend or in september they're doing their culture days they do uh hobbies for health and they have their annual scarecrow parade and people enter their scarecrows just for fun uh to uh, get uh, judged um and win prizes and and uh, they have a, this library coming this year they have indigenous days are gonna be featured there this year on september 19th and then we have a great wa- railway adventure and and their uh, garden, their outdoor garden train is going to be their grand opening. So they're going to have an outdoor garden train all the time at the uh, museum lawn. So that's something new and exciting because they have their railway club there too. Uh, <laughs> club, yeah. So they have that as well. That they have a great following there. So they, you know, they have four or five major events, but they have so many teas. There's always something going on there. Um, they they rent it out. They have a great group of eight men members, their, their measures are very active. I call them the keepers of our history and they're so good at it. They have about 10,000 plus archived items at the museum, which is phenomenal. And they're all from our area from local and an area because as you know, I'm not sure what you know about rural communities, but uh, rural urbans is that uh, our rurals are very, very much part of our community and, and they help build our towns. And, you know, back when, and still, they're very active volunteers and, and builders in our community. So everything is about our, our region around Isbury. Uh, it was the first free library when they opened. They are open six days a week, uh, which is and uh, year-round. They'll make special appointments for you to come and look. They have an active uh, working classroom. So the working classroom, they... Classes can go in and actually feel what it was like way back in my my days, like in the in the 50s, uh, early 60s, to go to school there and sit in a classroom with the chalk class board and, and the replica uh, antiques there, that, or the actual antiques there, that they can be part of and, and see and, and experience the school experience of uh, something much different than they have right now, although they still have desks, just not the same. So they were designated as historical designation in 2011, so it's, um, if you want something to do, and, and there's so many people when they go there, they go, wow, like, <laughs> they just didn't know it is history. They have theme rooms, they have a communication room, and they have a, a sport recreation, they have military police room, they have um, indigenous coming up, uh, dedication to that. Um, they have the film industry going to have a dedicated wall, but they, they keep those dedicated rooms so that you know where you're at and what you're doing in those rooms. They have a, an old kitchen or they, where they have their teas and stuff. They, they have all their antiques in there and they use the old teacups. And it's really a good feel and they really do a lot of work to give people the experience.
0: Notable Buildings For many of these buildings, you can walk around the downtown core of Didsbury and find plaques on the buildings detailing the history in even greater detail than I'm going to here. The Canadian Pacific Railway Station that would bring so many future residents to the area was built in 1902, and it's a Type 8 depot. Similar types of stations were built throughout the province, but the Didsbury one is the last example of this type of station in all of Alberta. Not only that, it is one of the oldest stations on the historic Calgary-Edmonton rail line, which was constructed in 1891. The construction of the building would have a huge impact on Didsbury as the community officially became a stopping point for those traveling the railroad. As was seen, within a few years of the station being constructed, Didsbury had grown from a hamlet to a full-fledged town, and the train station would become a provincial historic site in 1978. The Birch block in the community dates from the fires that destroyed two different stores owned by J.V. Birch. The building still stands and is a testament to the importance of Birch, who had come to Didsbury in 1903 with his wife. He would become one of the most influential businessmen in the community, while also serving as a member of the First Town Council, a member of the school board and the Sunday School Council. He would pass away in 1957, but his building still stands and is a symbol to a bygone era and the determination and endurance of early settlers to the Didsbury area. The Lysimer Block was built after the 1924 fire and it had even worse luck than the Birch Block. Originally built in 1901, the store was owned by W.G. Lisimer and it would burn down in 1908, was then rebuilt, then burned down in 1914, it was rebuilt once again then burned down once more in 1924. The new building would be built using the new bylaw rules from the town, and it continues to stand to this day. The Royal Bank building stands as the original site of the embalming studio and furniture shop that was once built in 1902. The terrible fire in 1914 would start at the store and spread throughout the downtown core. Later in 1914, the Royal Bank would erect its current building, which has housed many businesses over the years and was lucky enough to survive the 1924 fire. Following the 1914 fire, the Ranton and Studer blocks would be built upon the ashes of the post office and other buildings that had stood there previously. The new buildings were made with brick, using stricter building codes, and that was a big reason for their survival in subsequent fires like in 1924. Many businesses would occupy these buildings over the years, which has survived almost untouched for over a century. The Klink block was built in 1919 in the Chicago style replacing the building that had housed the Opera House and Theatre and had been destroyed in 1914. The new building would house the same businesses and serve as a movie theatre until 1968 when it was purchased by the Elks Lodge. In 1903, the Union Bank arrived in Didsbury and operated out of a wooden building until 1906 when a new building was made using masonry construction. That turned out to be a very good move since it was one of the few downtown buildings to survive the 1914 fire and it still exists to this day serving as the home of the Bank of Montreal for many years beginning in the 1920s, then as the municipal building for the town afterwards. Today, it is one of the few remaining cast stone buildings in Alberta, and one of the oldest buildings in all of Didsbury. The AGT Telephone Exchange Building was built in 1920, following the fires of the previous decade, and it survives to this day as an excellent example of public architecture from the 1920s. Not only that, it's been designated as a Provincial Historic Site because it's one of the few remaining examples of the old telephone exchange buildings still in Alberta. Here's Mayor Rhonda Hunter.
2: Well, you know, we have a lot of residential historical um, older buildings, uh, some with uh, historical designation. One of them is the Hebert House. That was built in 1907. Um, I actually have friends that used to live in it, and it's beautiful home with the beautiful banisters and the... Stairwell in the three stories, and it has the Widow's Peak on it where you go up. You can <laughs> go up there and watch the town on the Widow's Peak mm-hmm. um, idea. But our downtown, um, you know, the J.V. Birch building, the clink block, the Union Bank, the W.G. Wisemer building, the train station that was uh, repurposed uh, and salvaged by a man called Eldon Foote who donated it to our local scouts uh, group that aren't active right now, but it is very active. The Trainstead houses our Chamber of Commerce as their main office. And these buildings are beautiful. Um, they do have retail in them. There are some that have uh, apartment suites upstairs, but really very uh, just in, in use and very, uh, um, you know, some ladies' clothing stores. The Elks Hall is in one of them. Um, we have one that's currently vacant. It's the Union Bank. It was... Um, one of the masonry ones that didn't burn down in the fires because it was masonry. And that's currently under renovation. So we're excited to see what it is going to be because they won't tell us right now. <laughs> <They're laughs> Keeping keep it, it used to be, it has been a hair salon and a, a floor, flooring store. And so the owners are renovating it. So it's pretty exciting.
0: Notable residents. I'm going to close out this episode, as I usually do, by looking at the notable people to come from the community. Now Canada is not known for its fencers, but Didsbury had one of the best fencers in Canadian history. On December 31, 1916, Edward Brooke was born in Didsbury. In 1950, he would take second at the British Empire Games, and second in 1954 at the British Empire and Commonwealth Games. In 1952, he would compete at the Summer Olympic Games in Helsinki, finishing 14th and 22nd in his events. Brooke would pass away on November 1st, 2002, in Calgary at the age of 85. Brooke is not the only Olympian from the community. Ice dancer Karen Garasino was born in Didsbury in 1965 and would go on to compete in the 1988 Winter Olympics in Calgary, taking 12th in her event. She would have a great deal of success at the Canadian Championships, winning third twice, second four times, and first in 1989. She is also the aunt of Claire Boucher, the singer and artist also known as Grimes, who is currently married to Elon Musk. Karen's brother Rod competed with her in ice dancing and was also born in Didsbury. Bai Li Lang was born in Didsbury on December 4, 1908, and thanks to her rancher father, grew up knowing how to use a rifle and ride a horse. After paying her way through art school in Winnipeg by painting people's pets, she would gain commissions making sculptures of pet dogs for wealthy women in Toronto, using that money to travel to Europe. After spending a few years in Europe, she would leave Berlin when Adolf Hitler took power, traveling to Paris where she met her husband Alfonso, and the couple settled in Spain. As the Spanish Civil War started, she returned to Canada and her husband stayed with the Spanish Red Cross. She would never hear from him again. And in Canada, her work was becoming widely known, and she made several works that were widely acclaimed. In 1945, she moved to Bermuda, where she would live for the rest of her life. Here's Mayor Rhonda Hunter.
2: We have a beautiful view coming into town um, from all four directions, but in particular from our uh, off the QE2 coming in from east to west, because you go down through a beautiful river valley, and and our, our campground is down there that's beautifully treed, and... But it's a beautiful river valley. It's not, it's more amenable to, it's not really amenable to farming or um, um, other purposes like building or anything, The just the nature of the, the land being marshy. Um, so we have just the beauty of it and the greenery of it. And there's a, also a, a nursery, a tree nursery over there um, along that river valley the front of it's on the you know further over on another road but the back of it um, backs onto there too so they've got a lot of beautiful trees that have added to that area um when you come here we have a great shopping experience we have really unique shops um, that that use that sell a lot of local crafts lots of people that have, that have put their crafts and and uh projects into these stores plus this the store being the feature of ladies clothing we have Oh gee, just you know, love varieties. You have all kinds of shopping experiences, I guess, when you get here, and I, I can't really identify one in particular because that wouldn't be fair. So um, friendliness, you know, you see downtown, you see the beauty of the downtown. Uh, there's lots to do. You you won't get bored. We do have that great library. We have a, a golf course if you want to come and golf, and it's right right in town. The golf course, and it's a tricky little nine hole. And people love it, and they say if you can golf on the golf course, you can uh, golf anywhere because it's such narrow fairways. so it's <laughs> hard to hit the fairway. It's so narrow. You will see um, the beautiful residential heritage district, and even our newer districts are really beautiful with landscaping and, and the pe- people that have planted trees or just their yards are so beautiful. So you'll see that, and you'll see a very busy community that is very, know family focus there's lots of playgrounds Um, there's lots of open green space linear space to go and just run around we have um, like I said the park and that's it's a great area to go down and just enjoy so you can always do that and we have all kinds of of uh, food food types so you're not limited just to have a hamburger unless you want a hamburger there's lots of opportunities to do other other style of dining and we have terrific neighbourhoods and lots of community spirit. When you get here, you'll feel that sense of, uh, it's a vibe we have, that we just love our community and, and we love to welcome visitors and we love to welcome new residents who want to make their home here.
0: I hope you enjoyed that look at the town of Didsbury. It's a really cool community. I've been there several times. And if you did, please give a rating and review. You can reach me at craigatcanadaehx.ca and or you can visit my website and see hundreds of articles on Canada's history or all my podcast episodes. Just go to CanadaEHX.ca. Again, you can support the podcast by going to Patreon. Just go to Patreon.com CanadaEHX. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have. Aaron O'Hara, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roa, Luke S., Vic Hedges, JP Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, Spencer M., and Iris Gray. Thanks!